Red Brick Recap, People Papers Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Red Brick Recap, where I've been joined this week by our Science and Technology section and our lead developer, Joseph Chotard. So today we have Peter Moore, Francesca Benson and Ellen Heipel, and of course our lead developer, Joe. My name is Tom Lehman and I'll be your host once again uh, this week. So I thought a good way to start us off would be to ask everyone, uh, how did you all get involved in Red Brick and what is your favourite part of being a member of the society? Uh, Peter, I'll start with you, please. All right, thank you, Tom. Uh, so I'm the digital editor of Red Brick Scientech section, uh, and I got involved in Red Brick um, way back when, in first year, when I lived with uh, Holly Pitaway, who's now our deputy digital editor. Um, and I'd been reading the paper for a while, and she suggested that I perhaps come along to uh, the welcome meeting that year, uh, which had a particularly famous uh, PowerPoint that, if you if you were there, you'll remember. Iconic. My exactly. PowerPoint didn't even nearly live up to that. No. <laughs> Yes. No, nothing can live up to Erin's promise. But, but PowerPoints aside, I was convinced to start writing, and I, I started writing a comment. And funnily enough, how I got involved in Scientech was how was I? I had an article forwarded to Scientech because it was too sciencey for comment, um, <laughs> and we all sort of went from there, really. So. Um, and I kind of scooped you up at the AGM. Yeah, like, that was Hi, that. Li- this is literally the first time I've ever met you. Please be editor. <laughs> it was yeah, it was good fun. It was good fun. But yeah, that's that's the long and short of how I got involved. So. Basically, I had a couple of mates in my second year who wrote, and one of my friends was Amelia, who was a Scientech editor at the time. So I got involved, started writing a couple of articles. I really, really enjoyed it, actually. Um, and then I kind of said, oh, if anyone needs any help editing next year, yeah, even though editors are already picked. But then Amelia then dropped out of uni and selected me to be her replacement for print editor. And so here I am. Well, pretty solid story. It's a good time. Um, Yeah, so I'm Ellen. I joined Red Brick in second year. Um, I just kind of heard about it, and initially I wanted to write for the Life and Style section, Um, but here I am as a Scientech editor. But she's seen the light, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I went along to both meetings in second year and then uh, joined the Scientech section. It was quite small back then, so I um, wrote pretty much an article in print every week. Um, I then went away on my year abroad, and I came back and, yeah, became the print editor. Uh, and I'm Joe, and uh, I probably got non-traditional joint starting story. Um, I always kind of wanted to join Red Brick, but uh, I never really took the the leap and did it until um, Jivan, who was the lead developer of Red Brick last year, posted on the Computer Science Facebook page asking if anybody would be interested in potentially being a lead developer for for Red Brick, and I thought, well. This sounds like the perfect opportunity for me, so I just messaged him, and here I am now, second year, and uh, yeah, just doing the lead developer-y stuff of Redbrick. What yeah. was like the day-to-day of being lead developer of Redbrick? Um, it's it's pretty fun to be honest. Um, sometimes it's fixing fixing things on the website, like a link's broken or Google complained that a web page is not up to standards or something along those lines. Um, there's also a lot of IT maintenance, so a spreadsheet's broken. Somebody needs a spreadsheet fixed, or uh, InDesign won't open, or files corrupt, or something like that, and I, I need to fix that. And then just making sure that the website is running and ha- never doesn't crash for all our wonderful readers. Have you had any like favorite articles coming into your section? Um, so far favorite, this year, favorite articles coming into the section. Well, I could just say everything I've written. 
Yeah. But that would be that would be very self. Madison's all about the Joker. That was a very unique thing. Yeah, I'd say Madison is definitely a writer that you can rely on to produce something well. All of her stuff is brilliant. It's fantastic. Madison Harding White is her full name. Yes, yes. Look her up. So she wrote an article. It was kind of almost like talking about the things that happened in the Joker film and the connections to the um, kind of mental illness things, the causes of his mental illness that they go into and kind of the science behind it. So I thought it was a really good piece for our section because it kind of, it made it more open to the average reader. People that had been interested in the film would be more likely to read it. Especially she's, I think she did neuro undergrad, right? And she's doing her postgrad in something psychology related. So especially coming from somebody who's actually in that lev- in that area of research like it's especially interesting really i guess with like so many sort of slightly heavier stories about stuff like climate change which we'll come yeah. into in more depth later it's quite <laughs> nice to have something that sort of slightly lighter i suppose about a film yeah yeah Cause i think it, it's it's nice to be able to blend sciences and the arts together because yeah. i feel like there's kind of this false idea that they're completely separate and never mix and don't complement each other at all, which is completely the opposite of reality. Yeah, this is this is one of the problems we have because we we, ha- we have a sort of a core of writers who mainly come from the sort of STEM sort of community, uh, but actually sometimes you get a really fantastic article from uh, somebody who isn't doing science at all. So like uh, Daniela Southern, I think it yeah, is. she yeah. wrote a fantastic article about the uh, the wildfires in Australia. Almost poetic, it was. It was yeah. yes, but it's that element of of being able to communicate ideas to people outside of our field because sometimes in STEM you get used to writing in this very particular way uh, Mm -hmm. like you would for a scientific paper Uh, and it's not generally the best way to communicate it to the general public. People seem to forget that we're not a journal, like we're not nature or cell or whatever. We want want our things to be accessible, we don't want like a scientific report. Yeah, we're we're not having like like several tens of pages peer-reviewed uh, scientific. I papers. mean, backed up. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> everything we write is backed up with evidence. I don't want. I want to stress that everything that we, back, we write is backed up by science. But it's not. We don't want it to be too heavy, so that because our, our point is to communicate really more mm. than it is uh, to discover anything new or to um, to do that sort of peer-reviewed science that you see in journals. Yeah. One article that's been a regular feature for the section for a few years that's certainly accessible is the um, creature feature section, which oh, I yes. think a lot of writers try and get on board with. Um, could you just explain a little bit about what that is and if any of you have written any or if you'd like to write one, um, now would be a good time to explain it, try and sell that to our listeners. Um, so the Creature Feature um, is a con feature that we have every week, which is just kind of, well, it started out as like cool, wacky creatures um, that no one's really heard of. And it's also kind of incorporated people's favourite animals um, into that as well. Um, Someone literally did a hamster last year. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's just a chance for someone to kind of talk about why it, this creature is so amazing. Um, and there's often animals that I've never heard of on it. Um, and I think, so when I joined in second year, we didn't have that many writers. And I was kind of the only person that was more interested in like the animal side of it. Um, and I wrote every single creature feature for most of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Our writers have since diversified on, on creature feature. I said um, that's the one we get the most outside writers on. Yeah. I think yes, we, we have a like, little core of writers. But then that's yeah. the one we have the most people doing one-offs for our section on. I guess it's very accessible. Like yeah. anybody, every everybody likes animals. And I mean, apart from <laughs> weirdos. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, okay. You, you look at the success <laughs> of like Blue Planet and things like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's everywhere. It's an easily accessible um, idea. Just animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if something's like especially weird or especially cuddly. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah, weird or cuddly. I, I wrote one last year, which Peter knows intimately about. Oh, yes, yeah. I know this one. It, it was about this, like, sea creature that only sometimes has a butthole. <laughs> yes, I, I remember it because I, I was leafing through the old copies, putting things up on the website, and it just said, um, what was it? Sea, sea walnuts. Sea walnuts. Occasional anuses. And I thought, <laughs> hmm, this one's interesting. Um, Sounds like a really weird album. By the, by the occasional anuses, by the sea walnuts. I also have to confess, I'm one of the people who's written yes. one article for Science Tech <laughs> with my creature feature. Pablo Escobar's last year. Pablo yeah. Escobar. I'll tell you what, that did come in handy because um, anybody who's watched the Grand Tour on Amazon, they went to um, like Colombia, right? And, and they said, oh, we need to find a picture of a hippo. And I immediately went, ah, yes. I know how they're going <laughs> to no, do that. Same. Nice. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't ever say we don't do anything useful in Science Tech, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, science is famously not useful. <laughs> science, famous for being completely useless. <laughs> but I, I think what's also interesting is that a few of them sometimes lead on to, I think, the topic we're going to talk, talk about next in climate change, where mm. we see that yeah. a lot of the interesting animals, we, I mean, I've read a couple articles and they'll talk about how their endangered species or their habitat is being like reduced because of climate change and things like that. Yes. And so I think that's also an interesting thing to be aware of where... We talk about people moving in storms, but there's also a lot of these weird, interesting creatures that depend on a very specific ecosystem, really. Yeah. yeah. I think one we've had really recently about the pygmy sloth, um, the uh, writer actually ended the article kind of talking about um, how you could get more involved in their conservation and why they were under such threat. So um, that kind of, I guess, opens it up knowing more about it to people. Joe, to put you on the spot, um, you're yet to write a creature feature, I think. If yes. you had to write one tomorrow, what would you go for? Oh, um, ooh, okay, just putting me on the spot right now. Um, I'm not sure. I think I'd probably go for, like, maybe, like, ants. I don't know if ants have ever been done, but ants are actually really interesting. Actually, yeah. Because of, like, There's the... There's types as well. Exactly. exactly and the amount yeah. of, like research that's been done into ants is crazy because we just see ants and we're like oh it's an ant but they're so interesting in the sense that i mean just what comes to mind is there's this one type of ant that in their ant hills they grow their own mushrooms to eat yes. and oh, they have this process mean? where they actually clean themselves before entering the kind of rooms where they grow the mushrooms because yeah. they need to um because the mushrooms are very sensitive to like the outside environment oh, so they quality. clean themselves before like touching the mushrooms which is really interesting That's amazing. yeah it's, it's yeah. a really answer a really interesting example of this advanced social behavior but each individual ant doesn't really have very much brain power i agree it's a really interesting sort of a literal hive mind yeah it's a really yeah it's yeah. a hive mind getting on to the main topic of our podcast now uh, which is climate change which is obviously a topic that is now dominating the media and rightly so particularly in the context of the australian and amazon wildfires that took place at the end of last year and early this year um, however, not all of the effects of climate change will obviously happen so far away from home, which a lot of people may not realise with everything seeming to be on other continents. Um, so what could the consequences of climate change be for people in this country and particularly for students studying at Birmingham? Um, well, I think that is an interesting point because even kind of over the past couple of months have been all of these floods. Um, I know that Shrewsbury, which is quite close to Birmingham, has been mm. terribly, terribly flooded. I've seen like yep. so many um, photos of this. And um, I just kind of think that it is one of those things that is 
this is almost like a tipping point. It's starting to affect us, and I think especially with Australia um, affecting kind of developed countries um, is like a big a big step um, in in the climate change kind of scenario and research. Um, but I think it is al already starting to have impacts on on UK citizens. Mm, definitely. If we looked at the Selly floods from a couple of years ago, like that possibly could happen even more. Like mm. even homes are flooded at that point in Selly. Um, so that's very very personal for UAB students. Um, I think that at this point now it's starting to again, as you said, like affect developed countries. People, I think people think it's easy to put out put it out of mind because it's happening to people. Frankly, they don't care about. Um, mm. But now it's happening to people they do care about. Yeah. It's getting harder and harder to ignore, and even people who are affected who've been affected for years and years and years um it's it's affecting them on such a drastic deadly even level that even if people didn't care about those countries before they kind of have to now which is yeah yeah but do you think it might take possibly a disaster or something that costs a lot of money on perhaps the scale of australia happening maybe in europe for people certain people to really start to see it for the problem that it is well it's almost like even with everything that happened in Australia, and I think this was a really big thing that came out of it, was the government's response to it, um, with the with the Prime Minister not even really admitting that it was due to climate change. Yes. Um, and I think that that was a really big motivator of people in Australia um, going to strikes and kind of calling the government um, to have stronger action on climate change. Mm. Um, I can't remember them offhand, but there's some terrible quotes um, that the Prime Minister said, which is basically just there's like no evidence whatsoever that anything to do with this is climate change and we need to focus on building our economy in these difficult times. Yes. Um, and then I think it is just kind of almost it's not really having the desired effect on the government right now, um, but it is kind of mobilizing people, and then hopefully um, this will kind of impact on what happens in the future. Yes, um, certainly to contrast sort of Australia with the UK, um, the Australian sort of economy depends a lot on, on coal because they mine enormous amounts of it, and, and they basically uh, make a lot of money out of the, the coal industry. Now, the fact this is having terrible consequences has been, been brought home by the wildfires. Um, but I think the problem in Australia is that they they are beholden almost to this industry. Uh, or at least, unless they do something drastic, they are going to be beholden to this industry. Whereas in the UK, what we've seen over the past 10 years has been quite a dramatic shift away from coal towards uh, other methods. So a lot more... Um, there's a few more gas-powered power stations, which isn't great, but there's also nuclear... Uh, a lot, lot more renewables than there were 10 years ago. So there is progress being made. Mm. Whether it's fast enough is another question. Um, but certainly it's heartening to see the shift away from coal in the UK. Yeah, I think like one issue um, in getting governments to actually take action is that our current economic model is based around just voracious consumption of resources. Like I think the thing about capitalism is it, just dependent on growth and growth and just just endless growth without any end goal and that encourages the consumption of so much petrol so much plastic so much food so much general resources that basically we're we're just dependent on destroying the environment to keep our economic system going so i think until we drastically drastically change how basically our entire society works i think that this problem it can be helped but i don't think governments are going to take action until somebody takes direct action. I, I agree. I think it's up to everybody to 
uh, pressure like the local, the whoever is in charge, basically the local governments and then the country's government into taking decisions like that because, as you said, the the economy is so reliant on uh, these fossil fuels and things, uh, fossil fuels and things like that, that it's just so much easier to just say, well, we'll keep depending on that because, I mean, there's no as we were saying, direct consequence right now, and but in a couple of years there will be, and that's why it's important to pressure the governments to say, no, I know it's easy to continue mining coal and things like that, but we need to find more sustainable alternatives. I think a big thing um, in the UK at the moment, obviously, um, we've all heard so much about Brexit, um, but I've recently written an article about this. One of the things people don't yes, it's very good. <laughs> don't think about so much is how this is going to impact on science, and one part of that is to do with the environment, um, because there are a lot of EU policies um, that cover everything, different habitats, birds, all of this stuff, um, which obviously come next year we're not going to necessarily um, have these policies in our legislation um, mm. so it is kind of this time of negotiations where I think it's really important um, that hopefully the government will include carry on including these policies and maybe yeah. even kind of do ones that are better um, than the EU so I think this is an important time to kind of campaign for action definitely definitely yeah and to add on that as well I think uh, Erasmus programs and things like that also bring into it where right now I mean everybody's seen in the 20th century that the advances in science and research are are probably like certainly due to globalization and people sharing information and working on large-scale projects and i think that's why it's important also to continue sharing on an academic basis as well because climate science research is an emerging field that needs to grow even more and that's why i think that programs like Erasmus and things like that um, are also really important because they will allow more cultural and scientific like exchanges of knowledge really um, between countries. Yeah, there's a lot of emphasis put on individual choice in terms of climate change as well like oh never use plastic bags anymore which is I mean everyone should be living as eco-friendly as they possibly can but I think something that's more effective that people could do is organize locally organize on an even national level um, to mm. pressure governments into creating better policies pressure businesses into having better policies yes i think there's only so much that individual practices can do in terms of the environment because when you look yes. at it it is industry who is a major polluter this, yep. is, this is very true but this this is one of the the beauties of the system in that we can we we can choose to buy elsewhere we can choose what we've seen recently with uh morrison switching to uh paper bags although that's a, a definitely something i I have a bit of a thing with plastic versus paper, and perhaps we'll get into that later. Um, like the um, McDonald's straws that apparently they had plastic straws that you could recycle, and then they switched to paper that yeah. currently yeah. Paper they have technology to recycle. So, so, okay, fine. We'll get into the plastic. The thing is with, with paper, it's not necessarily an ideal replacement for plastic. So that for a start, there are certain things that you just can't use paper for. Um, so one of them would be so blood bags. Obviously, never going to be a thing <laughs> in paper. But um, the other thing is that paper tends to be heavier for the same weight. Well, it always is heavier for the same weight. Uh, and that unfortunately means that your transport to wherever you're selling this... Or, or I wrote an article about this last year. ...is going yeah. to be higher. Uh, the other thing is that paper is a much more energy-intensive material to make than plastic. Uh, although, admittedly, you do need to go exploring for oil, but once you've actually done that, the production of the, the plastic itself is quite a low-energy process by comparison. So it's not always true to say that paper is a better alternative. The other thing is that plastic tends to, one of its main features is that it doesn't degrade. Now there's some applications you might want that. So for example, 
um, you might want in your shopping bag. You don't really want something that degrades. You also don't want something that breaks in the rain. So one of the one of the things about the Morrison's paper bag is it's a lot lot heavier than the plastic alternative. Okay, it's still lightweight relatively, but at the same time, if you if you're thinking on the scale that Morrison's are producing these, uh, it's a lot more weight generally. Um, the other pieces, but petrol costs right and petrol consumption and all that. Yeah. Um, yes, it does. So for so transporting the bags. Yes. So so for your so let's say you're you're transporting it. You've got a truck full of. Um, full of paper bags versus a truck full of plastic bags. Well, the paper bags take up more volume because they have to be thicker, right? They're also heavier, so for the same number of bags, which means that you've got fewer in your truck and you're using more fuel to transport them. Whereas in the plastic case, you're using less fuel, but you're actually transporting more bags. I guess finding so alternative materials exactly. is the kind so of the, the problem, A lot of the problem with plastic is how it's disposed of, not necessarily... Yeah, I think um, the problem is single-use plastic that's not recycled afterwards. Mm. There's mm. no problem, really, with... Ha buying a a, a, plas a plastic bag that you're going to reuse like exactly. a good one, or if you bring it, if you put it in your backpack and go shopping and you use that, or I don't know, uh, like a lot of yeah, but essentially a lot of reusable pla plastic is yeah. really not the problem. The problem is uh, single-use plastic bags and things yes. like that, or single-use plastic cutlery that afterwards is not recycled and just sh thrown into Indeed. a Indeed. landfill and things like that. Really, but, but then you've got the other you've got the other thing in that you've got. You will have a problem when you start to run out of oil that your 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 raw uh, material, in this case crude oil, for your plastic bags is going to start to run out. In that case, the case for paper is good because, of course, paper comes from trees and trees are, are renewable, uh, although a lot of the chemicals used to make paper aren't. Um, so in that case, it might be a switch to bioplastics, but then bioplastics have their own uh, problems. One of the more interesting recent uses of plastic is as a structural material, particularly for harsh environments where it doesn't degrade like a lot of other materials would. So, for example, uh, steel. Uh, now, steel's a lot stronger, but at the same time, steel rusts, and it's quite hard to protect it. Um, and it's not it, always a defence to put it in concrete. So, if any of you have ever been uh, on the M5 or the M6, there's a lot of motorway viaducts around the Midlands, uh, and those were built in the 60s when they didn't think this would be a problem. Um, things like salt, but you, of course you put salt down on the roads, don't you, in winter to stop people, you know, to yeah. stop the road freezing over. And that means that, that the, the reinforcing bar inside the concrete, which is made out of steel, started to rust and that starts to chip away the concrete. So one of the things you can do if you don't need the strength is you can use plastic because it doesn't have those degradation problems. Um, and it's a much more energy efficient material because you can also recycle it from the things that people throw away. Uh, so there's a lot of research in that field. I think someone wrote an article for us not that long ago about um, someone, she won a prize um, making plastic out of recycled fish. Yes. Um, so it just goes oh, to show, yeah, marina text. Uh, recycled fish. Yeah, so I think maybe like the, the offcuts from um, like fish, fish waste, the thing that doesn't go into um, the bits that people eat to sell in the stores. Um, mm. I don't I think it has been widely used at all yet it was just um kind of a project but it does show that there are alternatives there if we kind of invest in finding Indeed. them but, but this is a, a more general point about about climate change and often it's 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 shown as very certain technologies and certain um certain approaches are often seen as very black or white and that isn't always the case so a lot of our listeners will remember the dieselgate scandal that hit vw a few years ago uh, where basically it had been discovered that their cars were cheating emissions tests. Oh, yeah. and, and it made diesel seem like the worst, you know, the fuel of Satan. Um, and, and yeah, there, there are a lot of problems with diesel because it, it's got a lot of sulfur oxides and, and nitrogen oxides in it and things that you really don't want to be breathing in. Um, but 
generally speaking, uh, diesel engines are more efficient. They'll do the same work at lower revs. They, generally speaking, because diesel engines are more efficient on the motorway, and certainly away from cities, on those applications, certainly in things like trains and buses, uh, you're going to use a lot less fuel, which means that you're actually producing a lot less CO2 emissions. So the, these um, these debates certainly have nuance, and it's not something that always comes across in the mainstream media. So something to do with like science and climate change is how much plastic research uses. Like, oh my god! Like, I'm doing my masters in a lab right now. I must use a bin bag full of plastic every day, non-renewable. Um, Isn't it also things? Yeah. There's so much stuff that you need. But obviously, it can't be like yeah. infected or like yeah, it can't be it's reused. Yeah. The, the, can't the reason the, word, the reason why we use so much plastic is because it's easily sterilized. It's yes. it's easy to be kept sterile, and it's fairly cheap to make, fairly light. Because you want to wouldn't want to be using glass vials for every single thing. Because no. I you like if you drop a rack full of it, God, that's gonna be bad. Um, but yeah, it's I think there are initiatives to start moving towards. But I don't think academic plastic. is. It's probably not the academics, not probably the biggest consumer plastic. I'm sure yeah, as yeah. an academic, you use a lot. But yeah, I think like I think if the world transitioned to not using that much plastic in other fields, I think, for example, as we were saying, yeah. blood bags. And ho- if hospi- exactly. Yeah. If hospitals still use plastic or things like that, I think that's not really an issue. Yeah, yeah. The like, issue is mass yeah. consumption in like everyday life. Yeah, because yeah. obviously we need, to, we need to use it because like there's no yeah. better material exactly. at this point. That if we get our samples I, contaminated, I then that's that's that really. Yeah, I was about to say food packaging, but there again, you know, you have the advantages it's more easily sterilised and so on. And um, also with, uh, with the whole plastic straw debate, plastic straws are very good for disabled people. Um, often, oh, yes. yeah, because like with steel straws, if they have like reduced motor control, if you bite down on a steel straw, that's going to be bad for your teeth. A lot of people yeah. are allergic to bamboo, people are allergic to paper, and it degrades. Mm. So for a lot of disabled people, plastic straws are the best actual option. We started touching upon this a little bit already um, with like the whole paper bag plastic thing. But um, outside of the sort of like obvious things like using public transport and like turning lights off when you're in a room and stuff like that, what can people do, particularly, again, students, to sort of reduce the impact that they are having on the environment and on climate change? Yeah, I, I don't want to be that guy who always says this, but honestly, go, being vegetarian or eating less, reducing meat consumption is the single biggest impact you can have as an individual on the on climate change, basically. Um, I've worked in a team where we've done a lot of research, on, written a lot of articles on climate change, and uh, consulted a lot of peer-reviewed papers, and essentially the general the the scientific consensus is that as an individual the biggest decision you can make is reducing your meat consumption mm. and i'm not saying like you should never eat meat but it's probably like going to get i don't know a tesco meal deal or something like that do you really need to get that sandwich with two slices of ham in it and that ham comes from an intensive uh, f- f- from a farm where the animals are mistreated and it's definitely bad quality meat and I think that's the real pro- thing we need to tackle it's not really going to the butchers and buying a nice piece of meat because that's fine occasionally if you eat m- meat uh, once a day or something like that but it's having it at mm. every meal where you feel like you need to have that yeah. meat in a sandwich or something like that and it doesn't actually add anything nutritionally and there's really no reason to have that piece of ham, for example, in a sandwich or something like that. Yes, uh, and again, there are there are nuances here. So, one of the worst um, meats for the environment is beef, because beef cows need a lot of space. Um, they produce a lot of methane, that sort of thing. So, 
again, if you if you can't if you are not prepared for whatever reason, I, I can't imagine what reason. But if you're not prepared for whatever reason to to reduce your meat consumption, you can have a little impact by changing the sort of meats that of you course. eat. Or just like, I don't know, the initiative Meatless Mondays. It's yeah. really easy. It's literally just one day a week you don't eat meat. And if everybody did Meatless Mondays, I mean, the impact it would have on the world would be incredible. Exactly. And I, it's, yeah. it's really easy, I mean. I yeah. think this is the thing is there's too much focus on kind of going vegetarian or going vegan. Um, and it's almost like people will judge you if you say you're a vegetarian and then they see you eating chicken when you're drunk. But it is more just like... <laughs> it does not, sound like that's some not sort of personal <laughs> experience, I assure you. Um, but a few of my housemates can relate to that particular one, I think. <laughs> um, but I think it is just really important to do your best and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you do, you do eat meat sometimes or you can only reduce your meat mm-hmm. consumption once a day. I think everything that people can do um, is, is valuable and is important. Exactly, it's not black or white, as yeah. you were saying. Yeah, it's shades of grey, shades exactly. of grey. And also, even like even if you are vegan or vegetarian or even a meat eater, uh, trying to source things locally is a massive thing you can yeah, do. Yeah. Because like, even if you're vegan, you could be having things shipped in from overseas that could really, really, like... Yeah, avocados. Yeah, like, I mean, I yes. get like, like, Even though I've been vegan for a while now, I still try and shop at the Clean Kilo. I try and not order in things as well. I try and actually physically go to the shop and get it because obviously getting yes. sort of delivered yes. like with me going on the train to go to Selfridges to pick up something bougie yes. as a tree is going to is going to be a lot less environmentally impactful than ordering it off cult beauty or something and yes. then other websites are available but, but this, <laughs> this is another thing that you can do for just for simple trips and it's the simplest thing is that you've got legs use them perhaps as something of a closing comment if there are any stem students listening to this which i'm sure there are um, how would you, what's the importance of them getting involved in something like Red Brick and developing those journalism skills and what impact could that have more widely? Um, well, firstly, it's something to put on your degree, which is, yeah. is good because a lot of these uh, STEM jobs you're potentially going into are very competitive uh, and it might just give you that edge. Um, the, the other thing is, as I say, communication. Um, it's all very well making some sort of groundbreaking discovery, but if you can't communicate it to people, no one's going to care, frankly. Um, so those are the two points I'd say. I, I think like Redbook is a brilliant society to join because it's such a huge society. You get to mix with so many people. I've made so many friends with people who I would never have otherwise met if it wasn't for Redbook. Yeah. So besides the academic and job prospects, yeah, there's, get, there's like definitely that too. It's one of the best societies you can join, in my opinion, for social things. If if you take the initiative to actually go to things, absolutely, you, you can just submit articles every so often. But I think something you could really do is like. Is, again, it's good for meeting people outside of your degree because a lot of people I yes. know on STEM, it's so it's so hardcore that like you only really see people on your degree. Yeah, it, it's and then it, that's it. In engineering, yeah. it becomes even like more because it's like engineering, right? But then you have civil engineering and you've got mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. They're all sort of pigeonholed. And then you've got even further. Well, I'm doing civil and railway, and that's even more pigeonholed. Yeah. Um, so it's really nice to be able to talk to people who are who are arts and you know who have that broader outlook. And and it's what you were saying as well on the. It's kind of it's kind of silly, but it is a big focus of university students is getting a job or internships. Yeah. And obviously, so I've been applying to tons of internships. And I recently did an interview for a cybersecurity position. So extremely <laughs> tech focused. Yeah. But I ended up spending one hour with um, with this guy talking about um, politics and the news and nothing tech related. And I think that being part of a society like Red Brick where you can learn about other things and talk about other things in tech is 
what can make the difference between being because Absolutely. no offense but on a job I mean, they don't need the world for an internship position. They don't need the world leading expert on something. They want somebody who can who can get it done and who who's good at it. But there's plenty of people who are good at it, and I think it's things like Redbrick that really make the difference in um, in who you are as a person, really. With that, I think we're just about at the end of um, our Scientech episode. So thank you all four of you for coming on. Um, thank you all once again for listening. I think that's probably one of the most probably one of the most insightful episodes we've had certainly covering a wide of um thank you very much we, we did yeah. we do try <laughs> um covering a range of topics that are obviously um very topical at the moment very important um obviously the work that you're doing in the science and technology section at Redbrick is um really important work for like getting that out there and getting it accessible to students um again thank you so much for listening um be sure to check out Redbrick on campus out every fortnight our website redbrick.me uh, check out Climate Science on Instagram. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. Redbrick Recap. People, Papers, Podcasts. <laughs>